Life leads all of us at times into situations that we would never choose. We all know the frustration of getting cornered, bogged down, trapped in a life situation that we really hate. And yet there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it to reverse it. We stop and we think back on the decisions that we've made and we think through the circumstances that have brought us to this point and we kind of scratch our heads and say, how did I get here? But we're here and we can't get away from it. It might be a financial burden we cannot shake or a miserable job, an ongoing family conflict, a troubled marriage, a heavy responsibility that we can't get out from under. It might be a past mistake that haunts us every day of our lives or a squandered opportunity. We would do almost anything to reverse the order of events that lead us to this place, but we do not run the universe. And we would do almost anything to escape our situation, but there are no options. We're stuck right where we are. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there today. It is in the midst of just such a life situation that we find Jacob in Genesis 29. And watching his life from the gallery of history, we're afforded a valuable glimpse of how to think about and to respond to such situations in our lives. In Genesis 29, Jacob is stuck in Haran. Remember chapter 28. In chapter 28, he sees a vision of God. And his whole journey is changed there. It's all looking now to get back to uh, Palestine as he goes into Haran. Chapter 29, 30, and 31, we speak of that immersion where he goes down into Haran. And there in Haran, he faces some tremendous difficulties. In chapter 32, that's where we're headed, he will see God again back in Palestine. But in this period of immersion, there is a time of great difficulty for Jacob. He finds himself in one miserable life situation. His first days in Haran were days of bliss as he fell head over heels in love with Rachel, the beautiful daughter of Laban. Life could not have been better in those seven years. He didn't care about money. He didn't care about his future other than Rachel. If he could just earn Rachel as his wife, he was happy. But as time passed, Jacob must have scratched his head and wondered, how did I ever get into such a situation? How is it possible that life has led me here with this man, this father-in-law, Laban, and in this marriage and marriages that I face. First seven years were a joy as he worked for the hand of his beloved Rachel, but then came the fateful marriage feast. Remembering that horrible revelation as he wakes up in the morning and realizes that he has been with Leah all night and not with Rachel. Because of Laban's deceit, Jacob is consigned to a life with two competing wives. On top of that, Jacob was forced to work another seven years for Rachel. This means that Jacob is stuck in a seemingly dead-end situation where he works 14 years, think about this, 14 years working on another man's wealth, building up another man's wealth. And he comes out of those 14 years with absolutely no material possessions of his own. 14 years. And that 14-year period leads into another six-year period in which Jacob remains mired in servitude to his grasping father-in-law. 20 years immersed in this situation, stuck at this place, Haran. But what we are privileged to see from the historical gallery that we, uh, where we find ourselves today, we see the hand of God working quietly, but steadily in Jacob's life. Jacob is not merely the victim of circumstances. Jacob has been chosen by God to receive the promise of God to Abraham and to Isaac. The promise, number one, of the land of Palestine. The second, promise of a great offspring. Those two promises pass from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. And in this section, we cannot miss that God is at work to fulfill those promises. I think as Jacob looked at his life, he may have really wondered at times. There was the vision back at Bethel. But there are times when he must wonder, how did I get here? What is God doing? Will these promises ever be realized? Like Abraham and Isaac before him, Jacob's faith is tested and he squirms. He's not sure And here at this place in time, his faith, in fact, is very cold indeed. He is caught in the web of his manipulative father-in-law. 
but God is at work. Remember, the Bible teaches that this account was recorded in Scripture to build up your faith. Why is this long text here about all these details about sheep and goats? Not a one of us cares about sheep and goats. There may be somebody here who does, but I, I doubt it. We don't care a whole lot about sheep and goats and raising them and all of the intricacies. Why is this passage here? It's here for you. God's Word teaches that. It's here for you. It's here to demonstrate truths that God has for your faith and for your nurture. So as we watch how God works in Jacob's life, we are learning how God works. We're learning what he typically does. We're learning, as we see the big picture here, that God has promised that Abraham would inherit Canaan, that he would father a great offspring, and that Jacob is the individual chosen to be the son of promise. But think about this, where we stand at this point. Abraham... How many sons of promise? He has a number of sons, but there's just one son, just Isaac. Isaac, how many sons of promise? He has more than one son, but it's just Jacob. Now somewhere along the line, as God moves in his plan, the family tree has to fan out, right? We can't just keep choosing one son forever. There'd be just one son today, or one son in Christ, or something like that. But it will fan out. The family will fan out. The family line will we'll go out from just one, this one son per generation scheme. It can't continue indefinitely. Somewhere that means, I know this is simple, but somewhere that means there will have to be multiple sons to someone in this line of promise. And that is exactly what God is up to now. God has providentially led Jacob to Rachel, and due to Laban's deceit, Jacob now has two wives by which he will father sons but as we get in among the family tents, we realize that Jacob's family is mired in one miserable situation. It's kind of like flying in an airplane. You're up there in the jet stream, just cruising along, sailing over. Everything's beautiful and working well. But when you land and you come down there on earth, you find it's very ugly indeed. Jacob loves Rachel, and he despises Leah. We could go into that for a long time, but just put yourself in Leah's place. Put yourself in Rachel's place or in Jacob's place. It is a flawed family situation. Jacob must wonder many times how he ever got here, but it is a place of competitiveness. We have two sisters scratching and clawing competitively with one another throughout this narrative, vying for their husband's respect and love. But let's look back up at the jet stream. Up above, God is performing his work. He's doing what he has promised that he would do to Abraham. So as with all of that in mind, we come down now on the earth here among Jacob and his family, and we find the first section here in 29, beginning at verse 31, where we left off last week. Chapter 29, verse 31, Jacob gains children. First of all, through Leah, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The great irony here, barrenness, connects Jacob to Abraham and Isaac's wives, both of whom were barren. The point is that only God can bring the promise to fulfillment. But in bringing that promise to fulfillment, ironically, it is Leah, not Rachel, who was chosen by God to bear Jacob's first child. It says here that Leah was not loved. That is really a very weak translation of the Hebrew word, which I, I think would be better translated hated. Leah was hated. Jacob never got over what Leah had done to him. Now, it was Laban's doing, and in that day particularly Laban's doing, but Leah had a part in it. She could have done something to let him know who she really was that night of that wedding feast, but she never did. She took the advantage that her father provided for her, and she went into Jacob's bed that night, posing as Rachel, and Jacob never forgives her. He hates her. But in the situation of that time, he is, so to speak, stuck with her. She's his wife. There's nothing that he can do. He hates her. In contrast to his father, who prayed for his barren wife, Rebekah, Jacob is presented here as prayerless concerning his wife Rachel, who, at verse 31 says, was barren. But God's grace 
is evident and Leah becomes pregnant. Verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me. He'll love me now. I've born him a child. I'm not going to linger long on the meaning of the names of Jacob's sons, but let's just please note right here at the beginning with the first son. Each name has a sound that recalls a statement the birth mother makes at the child's birth. That misses us here as we read it in English, but each time it's reflecting the statement. It might be parts of the statement, it might be specific words in the statement. We're not going to get into that. We could spend an hour and a half on how these names reflect the statement of the mother. Just understand this. The mother makes a statement, and the child's name sounds like, calls to memory that statement. So these children's names will always bring to memory what mom said. Secondly, put that together with this idea. Each name reflects a sentiment of the mother about the situation prevailing in Jacob's home. For the most part, Jacob plays the lowly role of stud here. That is, he impregnates four women while having no part in naming the children. And for their part, the wives use some of the names of their children to protest their situation in life. And as verbal spears, they hurl these names at one another with competitive jealousy. It's an ugly scene. And it's a scene that is always remembered in the names of the children of Israel. A sad scene. The competitiveness of Jacob and Esau and of Rebekah and Isaac now predominates in Jacob's own home between Rachel and Leah. But a son is born into this situation, a son by the name of Reuben, a combination of the words to see and a son. Leah exults in the fact that God saw her misery and allowed her to bear Jacob's first son, although everyone would expect this honor to have been Rachel's. And without reservation, Leah expresses her desperate hope that bearing a son to Jacob will turn his affection to her. It is sadly, however, an empty dream. Verse 33, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, that I am hated, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon, associated with the Hebrew word to hear. God saw her misery and gave her Reuben. But against her strongest wishes, Reuben's birth did not influence her husband's lack of love for her. She saw, he saw her misery with Reuben. Now God hears her complaint and gives her Simeon. The same idea here. I'm unloved, and I hope that my husband will love me. But God sees me. God sees my trial. Verse 34, again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. Her false hope is pitiable and heart-wrenching. She just cannot believe her husband will not love her now. Three sons, he must love me now. Levi is associated with the word to add, to join. In other words, a third son joined to the previous two. Verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, then she stopped having children. Perhaps this name reflects some development in Leah's faith. First of all, it's not without importance, as we see in the previous verse, that she is praising Yahweh. She is praising Jacob's God, the true God of heaven and earth. She's not praising the idols of her father, of her homeland. And here she seems to find her source of joy in God, not in the vain hope of her husband's affection for her. And what a providentially appropriate name, isn't it? Unbeknownst to her, the three names previous are all drawing attention to the fact that she is unloved. And now in this fourth child, Judah, unbeknownst to her, the one through whom Messiah will be born, the name comes out of her mouth. God be praised. God be praised, Judah. I will focus now on the blessing of the Lord for sons. So the family is growing. But it was not lost on Rachel that it was growing without her involvement. Every single one of these four boys was birthed by her sister. Desperate for a child. In a culture where this was the highest honor of womanhood, Rachel moved to change her situation Verse 1 of chapter 30, When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. 
Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? She became jealous. This translates a Hebrew word of an, that is an intense word, an excited jealousy, excited to anger. Anger which she vents here on Jacob. His love for her was not enough. She despairs of life if she does not have a child. Ironically, Rachel wants what Leah has, children. And Leah wants what Rachel has, her husband's love. And Jacob gets hit by a stray bullet from Rachel's jealous anger. Jacob has fathered four children, so he knows that the reason is not him, and he cannot do anything more for Rachel than what he is doing, and he responds with anger in verse 2. Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? There's a marital tiff here between two lovers. The man of famous love for his wife is now angered by her. Ironically, Jacob had sought to take God's place when he stole the blessing from Esau, but now Rachel puts him in that spot and he doesn't like it at all. Who do you think I am? Am I in the place of God? Absolutely not. Rather than pray for his wife, he simply rebukes her. Verse 3, then she said, and here's how she fixes it, Here is Bilhah, my, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob slept with her. And she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. It was a horrible idea and a godless practice, but it was common. This was cultural norm. To give a handmaid to the husband of a barren wife was very common. And Bilhah bears a child, literally in the Hebrew, on Rachel's knees, an idiom that meant that she received this child from Bilhah as her child, adopting it in a sense, if we would use our terms. Naming him Dan, her desperate passion is seen in this name. It means to vindicate. She's vindicated over her sister. Again, the words, just the names of these children bring the intensity, the jealousy, the frustration, and the arguments that these two sisters had. And then to Dan is added Naphtali. The name is associated with the Hebrew word for wrestling, indicating that Rachel saw herself as in mighty conflict with her rival sister and perhaps even with God himself. Though Jacob favored her over Leah, God apparently did not. But she has now prevailed with two children. Now, it wouldn't be satisfying in our culture at all, but in that culture it was a somewhat satisfying to a barren woman, that she would have children by her handmaidens. That gets Leah involved at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. As you're reading through the text and you're studying through it and you hear the names that Leah gives to her children, you begin to say, this seems to be a woman of faith. This seems to be a woman of, of grace and a woman of goodness. But that's put the rest here with this. Uh, Leah has every bit of the orneriness in her that Rachel had uh, toward Leah. We see that because we see here that in the birth of her four sons, Leah's statement leads us to pity her, even to respect her. But here we see another side, a competitive and mean-spirited side. Even though she has four sons of her own to match Rachel's two via concubine, Leah does what it takes to keep her tally well ahead of Rachel's. In this fallen family, score is being kept with children who are flaunted against the rival wife like trophies on a shelf. Gad, what good fortune has come, another son. And Asher, happiness, I will be praised and happy. Praised by the other women and happy. 
Leah then bears again, and this takes some doing. Verse 14, During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Let's trace this because it'll be essential to the remainder of this account. It's March or April of the year, and as we piece together the chronology, Reuben is probably about four years old. He's probably out in the field just playing around, and he finds this fruit, and he picks some for his mother, mandrakes. They grow on a plant which has large leaves that just fan out from the ground, and on those leaves, among those leaves, there's found a fruit which is about like, something like a tomato, but is yellow. And it was its name, mandrakes, not doesn't work for us in English, but it sounds something like love or lover. And so the fruit became, was popularly referred to as love apples. And, we, and it was believed to have aphrodisiac properties, that is to make one fertile. So get this picture, little four-year-old Reuben comes in with, these, with this fruit for his mother. And, and I'm, I'm reading in between the lines here. This is a little bit of guesswork. But I'm thinking Rachel sees this and says, hey, there's, maybe there's something to this. I mean, everybody knows about love apples, but maybe it's, maybe it's where Reuben finds them. Maybe there's a good plan out there somewhere. But she begins to watch this as Reuben comes in and gives these, yeah, presents this fruit to his mother. Middle of verse 14, Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? There's a below-the-belt statement, and not fair at all. Leah had every bit to do, as much to do with this miserable situation as uh, Rachel did, but she says, you, want my, you, want, you got my husband, now you want my son's mandrakes. It's, it's a low blow. Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight and return for your son's mandrakes. In vain hope, Rachel fancies that these mandrakes are going to make her fertile. One wonders if Rachel almost thought Leah knew something about this special plant in some way. And so she wants this fruit. And I'll get it at any cost. Leah, of course, is seething with bitterness toward her sister. And Rachel apparently controls the rights to conjugal relations with her husband and trades that night for those mandrakes. So Leah may have stopped bearing children, I think probably chapter 29, verse 35, because Jacob had stopped sleeping with her. And if we put all this together, and if we're right, if I'm right about this, it might be Rachel who's controlling the schedule, and therefore who's deleted her sister from the schedule. But now she's, that was her doing, and now it becomes her undoing in verse 16. So when Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. You see the point. It isn't, it's, I've decided that it's my time tonight, but I've hired you. So Rachel seems to be the one who controls the situation. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Well, the mandrakes work, don't they? They work unbelievably well, but not for Rachel, who eats them. They work for Leah, who trades them and thus gains a night with her husband. Leah is very fertile. With or without mandrakes, she bears a fifth son in as many years to Jacob. For, the, for his part, Jacob is treated by his wives almost as if he were a sex slave, whose services can be traded without concern. It's a horrible family situation. And as these women scratch and claw around him, he had to stop from time to time and say, how did I ever get into this? How did I get here? Why am I here? Well, Leah names her next son Issachar, associated with the word reward. She foolishly thinks that this son is a divine reward for giving her handmaid earlier to her husband, as if that was something gracious on her part. Verse 19, Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons, so she named him Zebulun. We don't know exactly why she has another child here or if she needed to, be, to purchase that right and all of those things we don't know. They're unimportant to us here. But she has another son. And do you see it there? Again, she still holds out hope that her husband will love her. 
that bearing sons will somehow bring his love. And so Zebulun is associated with the word for honor. Sometime later, verse 21, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. We, we're not sure if this daughter is probably born sometime after the second seven-year service period. Uh, as that phrase would indicate, sometime later, we don't know, but she does not factor in very heavily into the account, other than to say this. One girl among what will become 12 boys, she has a lot of protectors. And that's a point which will be tragically demonstrated later in the book, bringing further misery to Jacob in his family life. But finally we come, as the account opens here, with the fertility of Leah, the account ends finally with the fertility of Rachel. Verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, he listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Joseph is associated with the idea of addition. There's some women who have a child and say, Never again. While they're still laying there sometimes. Never again. This is one of those women that says, I can't wait for the next one. She even names her son that. An addition uh, uh, to the family, I'm sorry, I got the wrong name. Joseph is, is uh, that the Lord, it is, that the Lord would, add, I'm sorry, I'm lost here. Where am I at? The name Joseph means, uh, I lost it. Anyway, it's, it's an addition. That's the idea, that she's going to have another son. That's the point. It is, it is the word addition. I see it here now. In other words, Rachel is elated. She brings glory to God, asking that he give her another son. The mandrakes, by the way, have no bearing on the, her fertility, God opens her womb in some two to three years after the Mandrake situation. Let's stop then as we come to this transition point. If you'll bear with me here. As one notes, we have two, two competitive sisters, a husband caught in between, and an explosive father-in-law are not the most likely data for narratives of faith. It's well said, this family is a mess to put it more simply. Competition, lack of love, neglect, turmoil, disgrace, a lack of spiritual leadership. This is not a godly family. But it is this family that God has chosen to bless. They will suffer immensely for their sin, but God's plan is not thwarted by their sin. It's an important point to understand as God works they live out their lives with sound and fury while God silently works His grace through them. This family is stuck in a mess, but it is this family that God has chosen to bless. Think about it. Leah becomes ultimately the mother of Jesus Christ. Rachel becomes the mother of Joseph, the next patriarch, the firstborn of Israel in the firstborn right. And this Jacob will become Israel, the name that will mark God's people for eternity. And these 11 sons, and a 12th yet to be born, become the 12 tribal heads of the Israelite nation through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. It puts to rest any notion that God only works with perfect people. God is not done yet with Jacob in Haran, however. He has children. As you think of the two major promises, where, where are we? Offspring, right? He's still not in the land. He's still in Haran. Something's got to happen here. He has children. The promise of an offspring is looking good. The problem is that he has worked as Laban's virtual slave for 14 years. Jacob has 12 children. What was the Israelites' problem? I wonder as they're reading through this narrative, remember they're the original recipients, they're kind of thinking, you know, when we left Egypt, we had nothing Jacob can't leave here without getting something. You can't take your 11, 12 children, potentially with Dinah, depending on when she was born, your at least 11 children, the wives and handmaids and all that goes along with that, whole group of people. You can't just take them back to Palestine. You've got to have some resources. And Jacob has nothing. He's been serving Laban all of these years. What are we going to do? I'm sure Jacob would have loved to return that morning that he says I want to go back to Laban as we find in verse 25 Rachel gave birth to Joseph after she gave birth to Joseph Jacob said to Laban send me on my way so I can go back to my homeland and I think he's saying now send me as quickly as possible 
But God, in His providence, is saying six more years. It's been 14 years of immersion in Haran. There's six more to come. And that leads us to the second idea. Children, first of all, have been gained here in Haran. Secondly, comes wealth at verse 25. Jacob wants to go back in verse 26 says, Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. What is he saying there? Listen, I served you for 14 years. I have two daughters, but I've served you for 14 years and I've made you a wealthy man. The least you can do is supply the physical needs necessary for me to get back to my homeland. Just get me home, and I'll be fine from there. Not so fast, says Laban, verse 27. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. The Lord has enriched Laban because of Jacob. Laban should have not needed divination to determine that should have been quite clear to him of God's promise to Jacob. But God, who hates divination, permits Laban's magic to produce the right answer so that even Laban can't argue with the point. God has blessed Jacob, or say it more accurately, Laban because of Jacob. Laban's the one who's rich, and he knows that Jacob is the reason, and so he says, will you please hang around here a little bit longer? And then it, it had to kind of send chills through Jacob, but then he says, verse 28, name your wages and I'll pay them. He'd heard that before. It didn't turn out very well the first time, but Jacob is broke. He has a family to feed, and so he says, all right, I'll do it. He would never choose this situation. He'd never put himself here, but he's here. He can't get out, and so he accepts the terms He's called, or he accepts the situation. Now he is left to state his terms. Verse 28, as uh, Laban says, name your wages. Jacob says in verse 29, you know how I have worked for you and how your livestock is fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I have seen, wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied, but if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages, you have paid me. Any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. If you'll go back to verse 30, if you're underlining anything in your Bible, a good word, phrase to underline is increase greatly. You had, the little you had before I came has increased greatly. That's a key phrase here. Laban has been blessed through Jacob, chapter 12 and verse 3. Jacob then names his wages. By the way, I should probably mention here that increase greatly means to break out in wealth. Laban's bottom line has exploded. His financial status has been revolutionized because of Jacob's coming. Now, Jacob, naming his wages, says, Give me every speckled and spotted lamb. Speckled, small spots, spotted, larger spots. But it's a lamb that doesn't look white and, and pure, as would be typical. And give me every goat. Uh, every, every spotted lamb and goat and every dark lamb and light-colored goat in Laban's flock, make that mine. The sheep in this day were typically white. Most of them that, that were born would have been white, and the goats would have been typically black or dark brown. And that same Hebrew word is referring uh, to that color of goat. So you have this monochrome goat in almost every here. Most goats, black or real dark brown, monochrome, and monochrome sheep, one color of sheep, white. That's the base. That's the normal. Jacob says, give me the oddballs. Give me all the speckled ones, all the spotted ones, all the goats that are the wrong color, and all the sheep that are the wrong color. You got a black sheep? That's mine. You have a lighter goat? That's mine. All the oddballs. Now, genetically speaking, 
that would have kept him very far under 20% of the flock, typically speaking. And typically speaking, shepherds were hired for about 20% of the flock. They would raise the flock, the flock would bear young, they'd come back to the, to the chief shepherd, to the owner of the flock, and they would get 20% of what they turned back. So I, I think Laban's, you know, his, his eyes are twinkling. I mean, they're lightning here, and he's saying, what a deal. If I can just bite my tongue long enough to not get too excited here and say, okay, I'm in. Sign here on the bottom line. Jacob is an excellent worker. He's proven that, and we will find that later in the, in the text. He's an excellent worker. He's going to be paid below average wages, and the contract, it can't go wrong. It's straight up. You can see visually which ones are his and which ones are mine. There's nothing that he can do to fool me. Deal, says Laban. I'm in. Sign right here. Let's go. We're in business. Verse 34, agreed, he says, let it be as you have said. That same day he removed, that is Laban removed, all the male goats that were streaked or spotted, and all and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. That's not Jacob placing them in the care of his sons. I believe that's Laban placing them in the care of his sons. In other words, he goes through to make sure that Jacob's going to start at ground zero. Now, my understanding here, and this is a guess on my part a little bit, but I think he could have been gracious and just right out given Jacob all of the odd-colored ones that were in the flock he was caring for, but he doesn't do that. He's a hard businessman. He takes all of them out, and he sends them with his sons, and they take off a three-day's journey. Verse 36, he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. So what's the point? Laban's being very careful that Jacob can do nothing to get on top of him here. This is going to turn out my way, says Laban. Jacob can cheat. He cannot cheat. He cannot breed the mottled livestock because there aren't any in his flock. And there's no way that Jacob can steal any of Laban's flock in the night and bring them to mate with his flock to get the odd-colored animals. It's a foolproof method, Laban thinks. But we'll see that under this method, God is at work, and he blesses Jacob. Verse 37, Jacob, however, took fresh-cut branches with poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. When he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly, then he placed peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink, when the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. I realize I'm not with a farming group here, but if you've been on a farm, you understand the situation here. It probably wouldn't be so uh, proper for this fine, refined group here before us. But as they feed at the trough, if you've ever watched this, there's a... a backward mount, and that's where the breeding takes place. So he's got this all figured out. As they breed at these troughs, he puts down these branches that he's peeled of these three kinds of trees. He drops them in the trough so that as the ewe is there to drink and, and the male comes up behind, the, the ewe is seeing, probably spinning in the water, these branches that are peeled and so striped. In other words, not plain. What in the world's going on here? There's a couple of explanations. One is that poplar, almond, and plane trees were used medicinally in that day, and it may be that the sap from these trees was placed in the animals' watering troughs, aiding their fertility. But it doesn't answer how in the world something's going to come out odd-colored, mottled. It doesn't give any answer to that at all. The idea seems to be that Jacob is following a ridiculous magical notion claiming that whatever an animal saw when mating would have an effect on the offspring. Now, we do know that was a theme, that was a thought. But it wasn't any more real than Rachel's mandrakes. It's just one of the legends of the time that this is going to work and going to produce modeled offspring. So he's peeling the barks on these trees in stripes, hoping that the animals will see them as they mate, and just like Rachel's mandrakes, will become fertile and bear modeled offspring. It's, it's really just all wishful thinking. In actuality, genetically, 
we know there's two things combined here. First of all, genetics, and secondly, divine blessing. That's what will determine the coat of Jacob's flocks. Jacob was entrusted only with monochrome animals. But genetically speaking, about two-thirds of those animals would have contained a spotted gene. So eventually, modeled offspring will result. But notice verse 40. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. So not, not, Jacob is not just standing back and saying, I'm going to let uh, genetics, or whatever, how, whatever term he might have used, but I'm not going to just let that take its course and eventually I'll get some. He is working on breeding practices to make sure that his flock increases. Now, did you read something weird there in verse 40? It says there, He set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. I, I thought none of them were supposed to belong to Laban. The only way to really understand this is from chapter 31. As a matter of fact, everything we read in chapter 30 is very much highlight, or, or helped in our understanding by chapter 31. I think the situation here is Laban keeps changing the rules. All these model animals start showing up with Laban's flocks, and Laban says, wait a minute, we've got to change the rules here. Now it's going to be just the speckled ones, not the spotted ones. And no longer the deal with the goats, only black lambs you get. And, and Jacob says, you changed my wages ten times. He seems to keep changing the rules. And so here, as he changes the rules on Jacob, Jacob uses what Laban gives him, and through wise breeding practices, begins to nurture a flock for himself. Verse 41, whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate near the branches. I think the idea, though specifically may not be obvious to us, is fairly obvious. Verse 42, if the animals were weak, he would place them there. He would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. Just breeding practices. Not only does he isolate his own animals, he carefully breeds the stronger animals for his own flock and the weaker ones for Laban's. That is, uh, sheep obviously doesn't matter how strong they are for their wool, but it matters how long they live and how... Uh, durable they are in the elements. So we have here the deceiver Jacob who was deceived by Laban. And so now the deceiver of the deceiver is deceived by the deceiver. It's quite a situation. By self-serving, deceitful, albeit ingenious and industrious means, Jacob, verse 43, in this way the man becomes exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and uh, men servants and camels and donkeys. Now you remember back in verse 30, I said, note that word, increased greatly. Laban's wealth increased greatly. Same Hebrew word used here in verse 43, grew exceedingly. Laban's wealth explodes because of Jacob. What's the promise? I will bless all nations through you. Jacob's wealth explodes as God gives him this opportunity. I will bless you, says God to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Go back to chapter 28 at Bethel. I will prosper you and I'll bring you back to this land. Laban, folks, is never going to send Jacob back to the promised land. I, I think we kind of got that figured out about Laban by now. He is going to find a hook to put into Jacob and keep him in Haran as long as he can possibly keep him here. But God works uniquely and provides a way out for Jacob. Chapter 28, verses 14 and 15, there was the promise of blessing to Jacob, and God is bringing that blessing out. If you want to just note it there on your own. And verse 16, when Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. What is Jacob discovering here? Yes, the Lord is in Bethel. But the Lord is also here in Haran. He is in this place. And he is blessing Jacob uniquely. What Jacob's doing with all the peeling of the branches and putting them in the water and all of that has nothing to do with anything. And in the end, Jacob himself will acknowledge that. Chapter 31, verses 6 and following. He'll say, it was God who blessed my flocks. God can play around a little bit with the genetic system. And he apparently does 
and he gives to Jacob great wealth. Just a few minutes longer. I know this is really thick to go through this much text here in a setting like this. But if you'll bear with me for a few more moments, and I would encourage you here. Here's the basis of our adult class earlier this morning. Go out of here and think. Think about this. Meditate on what does this say to us. God put this long narrative here for you and for me. What can we learn? First of all, I think we learned something about God's timing. Think about Abraham and Sarah. They waited until they were 190 to realize God's promise of a son, Isaac. They waited that long before God's promise was realized. Isaac did not marry until he was 40, and his wife, Rebekah, was also infertile. Finally, they had twin sons, and only one of those was chosen to carry the line of blessing. Now, you put yourself in Abraham's spot, you put yourself in Isaac's spot, and a lot of time's passing by. And it doesn't seem like God's working very actively to realize the promises that He's given to you. But from our standpoint, in the gallery of history, we look and we see that God was very active. He knew what He was doing. He was leaning toward the 12 tribes of Israel and Jacob. And it's a reminder to us in our trial to be patient, to endure. Do you feel like you're stuck in something right now? You're stuck in something and you can't get out? You don't know how it is that you possibly got in this situation, but you're here and there's nothing you can do about it. Be patient. Endure. Abraham served not only his own family. Isaac served not only his own family. They were being used by God to aim toward Jacob's family. God may well be using you to accomplish something two to three generations down the line. Don't think because you're not delivered from your ordeal overnight that God has lost track of you. Remember, He may be at work through you in the lives of your unborn children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Keep doing what's right. Keep plowing forward. God's timing is not our timing. Secondly, God's discipline. You find yourself trapped in a situation with no way out. You wish the circumstances were different, but they're not, and you can't change them. You've waited a long time, but no change is on the horizon. Think about Jacob here. As we look from our historical gallery, it's clear that God had work to do in Jacob's heart in Haran. So much of his misery was his own doing, but even that which was not his fault, God was using Jacob's circumstances to teach Jacob that he was everywhere and that he runs the universe. Jacob needed to be cured of his deceptiveness and his self-reliance. That would not all happen here in Haran, but God used the ordeal in Haran to advance the work that he was performing in Jacob's heart. I know this is difficult, but as we go to time, as we find ourselves in situations of trial, we need to remember God uses trial to change us. He is using trial and difficulty and stuck situations to change you. And you say, I don't see how that's going to happen. And I don't like it. We don't. But that's what he is telling us through a story like this, through this account of Jacob. That's what he's telling us he's about. Haran was going to end. 20 years, the long time for Jacob. This ordeal would end. And your ordeal will end. We don't know if it will end in this life, but it'll end. God knows what he's doing, and he's not just serving you. He's serving your children. He's serving perhaps your grandchildren, perhaps your great-grandchildren. You don't know what he's doing. Trust his hand. Go to Hebrews 12 and realize that God brings his children through hard times to help them and change them and mold them and to serve his purposes, which, were, which are bigger than us. God's timing, God's discipline. Number three, maturity. Following from his discipline, God will mature his people. We need to rest in that. God typically glides silently forward with grace and precision while we resist his providence with sound and fury. Let me say that. That's all 
maybe hard words. Let me say it real simply. Leah and Rachel needed to relax. They just needed to rest. God was going to open their wombs in His time. And all the mandrakes and all the fighting and all the name-calling and all the naming didn't do any good. They just needed to relax. He was going to open their wombs in His time. He was going to do what He was going to do. And all of their competitiveness and pettiness and scratching and clawing accomplished absolutely nothing for anyone. And it reminds us that when we're stuck in circumstances that we despise, we must remember that competitive rivalry and manipulation and pouting are a waste of time and a reproach to the name of Christ. We must not fight fire with fire. We must trust God's hand. A side point here I think that's important is to remember that the blessing of the presence of God's blessing does not justify the means. It only shows that God is there. So often people get this confused in their life. Something good has happened because I did this. And they say, therefore, this is right. The means may not be good at all. Does God bless Jacob? Yes. Is Jacob a deceiver? Is his family a mess? Absolutely. So don't confuse that. I do such and such a thing and God blesses it. Therefore, this such and such a thing that I did has to be right. Not necessarily. God moves to bless His people in the midst of their troubles and trials. The only thing is, with our sin, we just bring misery down on our head as He blesses us. But He will bless His people. Let me say then, in closing, I think there's a note here on humility for us. May we all remember that Jacob, what Jacob eventually acknowledged. That everything that we gain in this life, everything that we achieve is a gift from God. There's no prayer in Jacob's life that's evidenced in the text anywhere along the way here. He's wise, he's strong, he uses ingenuity, he works hard, but he doesn't seem to rely much on God. When we come to chapter 31, there's a dawning, and finally, fully in chapter 32, or or largely in chapter 32, a dawning in Jacob's mind, I'm not a self-made man, and neither are any of us self-made people. Anything that you gain and anything that you accomplish is the work of God, is His grace upon your life. We're called to work and we're called to plan, but every blessing is from the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father.